Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. As a note for our listeners, this podcast was recorded on August 5th, 2021. The topics included in this podcast include information that is changing at a rapid pace. Please keep that in mind as you listen to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy this special edition of the Mouthy IP. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of the mouthy IP. So in previous editions, we've taken questions from our listeners and uh, tried to address them on the podcast. For this edition, uh, we decided to ask our own question and uh, provide the answers, at least as much as we know today. So uh, today we're going to talk about uh, COVID-19 and specifically the Delta variant. So with us today is uh, Sarah Stream and also Dr. Richard Starlin, uh, who can shed some light on what the Delta variant is, what it isn't, and what we might look for uh, coming down the uh, near future. Thanks so much, Dan. Um, Dr. Starlin, would you like to give a little bit of background to our listeners on um, what your role is? Yeah, thanks. Uh, happy to be here, and thanks for inviting me. Um, as I said, I'm Rick Starlin. I'm an infectious disease specialist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Nebraska Medicine. I'm also medical director for employee health, and I've had various roles throughout the uh, pandemic uh, here at Nebraska Medicine and actually throughout the state and region through ICAP, et cetera. So, um, Hopefully I can shed some light on some of these questions as much as we know right now uh, as uh, this continues to evolve. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day today, Dr. Starlin, to join us for this. Um, we at ICAP especially are starting to get a little concerned on the trends that we're seeing um, as far as case rates go. And it seems that for the most part, they're all related to this new Delta variant. So there's really a lot to unpack when we ask the question, what is the Delta variant, right? And I wanted to get uh, some input from you, Dr. Starlin, on just to begin with, how did the Delta variant come to be? I know there's a lot of questions um, regarding like, well, why is it so different than our initial strain? And how did it get to mutate to what it is today? Yeah, great question. And I think uh, having some degree of concern right now is certainly warranted. Uh, our cases had been significantly down you know, a month or two ago uh, uh, to the point where we had very few people in the hospital and a lot less uh, cases in the community. And they certainly have picked up. There was a definite transition in the variants that we're seeing, at least locally, but in other places, it was even ahead of us, 
where we transitioned from what was called the alpha variant, which was predominant mostly throughout most of the spring until the middle of summer to the Delta variant, which rapidly took hold and is now the vast majority of the cases that we're seeing. So uh, viruses mutate essentially when they replicate. So the, the idea of variants and the fact that we are finding variants was not unexpected. We see that with a lot of viruses. SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. And so part of its replication is that it makes errors as it replicates. Um, and it doesn't have a very effective check function to correct those errors. So some of those errors will lead to viruses that have no clinical significance at all. They may make it so that it's not contagious, not infectious at all. But some of them will make the virus more what we call fit. So the virus has maybe some increased activity, some increased transmissibility, some increased ability to make more severe disease. And so those viruses that have those variants uh, that become more fit then have the ability to, to start to predominate as they continue to replicate. And so the concern whenever you have an, an, an epidemic pandemic like this is that ongoing viral replication is going to lead to some of these variants due to these mutations, and that some of these may be worse than the initial wild type virus. So just the way I'm understanding this, I'm not a physician at all. Um, I don't pretend to play one on TV or anything like that. Um, but this really is a case of survival of the fittest. These viruses mutate and they have, um, you know, they're a little bit more contagious or they're a little bit more severe and those end up being the ones that survive. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. So Darwin would be proud of you. You, you, you learned <laughs> the lesson from, from him. So yeah, essentially this, they, the, the mutation gives the virus some kind of an advantage over the other viruses, whether it's increased ability to be transmitted. If it can get transmitted to more, then the virus is going to spread more. It may be that it's able to evade the immune system either because of prior infection or prior immunization a little more than another virus would. Uh, it may lead to more severe disease because it has more interactions with the host that it gets into. So essentially, yes, kind of like a survival of the fittest for the, the virus. So that's what we mean by a more fit virus. The less fit mutations just simply die off, whereas the more fit ones then become the predominant strain. That makes total sense. So with this mutation and with COVID-19, it's, it's proved that uh, it will mutate and it continues to mutate. And I don't know how many different strains have been identified, but is it the case that the longer COVID-19 takes a hold, the more mutations we'll see? And generally, the worse they'll become? Do they always get worse? It's the fittest one. Is the fittest one equal the worst type? That's a great question. And, and so our concern is, is that as you continue to have ongoing active viral replication and transmission to new hosts, that you could end up with a more significant 
virus that causes more severe disease and is more contagious. That's essentially what's happened some with Delta compared to the prior variants uh, that happened. So this is, again, it's not unexpected. And it's certainly our concern that if we don't get control of viral replication, that we will continue to see more mutations. The number of variants that have been uh, seen out there is probably innumerable overall. But again, a lot of those are become less fit. So they're not going to be the ones that cause more severe disease. The ones we're concerned about are the ones that become more clinically significant. The CDC and the WHO have developed a scheme where they keep track of these. So they have variants of interest. So those are ones that seem to maybe be a little bit more fit, maybe cause a little more disease. Variants of concern, which are the variants that um, are significant clinically and have been named, uh, such as alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and then variants of high consequence, which we haven't had any named variant of high consequence as of yet. And so they have definitions for how they group the variants based on those things that we talked about that are, uh, you know, how do they respond? How do they bind? What's the efficacy of treatment? How severe of disease do they cause? How is their transmissibility? So those things all play a role in what group they go into. So most of what we're talking about when we're talking about variants has been the variants of concern. Uh, again, that would be the, the alpha, the Greek alphabet type ones now that include delta. The, the old, what we refer to as the California variant is one that's a little different between the CDC had that as a variant of concern and, and the WHO only had that as a variant of interest uh, just due to probably it, it stayed pretty much in the United States for the most part. But those will continue to evolve. Your question is very appropriate, Dan, that it, as this pandemic rolls on and we continue to have a significant amount of uh, viral replication and new mutations and new variants, we'll just continue to move on down the Greek alphabet. Now, does that necessarily mean that it's worse? I, I don't know. Uh, you know. Locally, you may get a new variant that maybe isn't any significantly different for the most part um, from the older variants, but something that's going to take over like Delta has relatively quickly certainly would be a concern that it maybe is more severe and more transmissible. And if we look at the impact of Delta versus uh, the other variants that have, have came before it, is it true that this, the Delta variant is uh, more transmissible? Um, you know, I, I read uh, that it was, uh, you can catch it as easily as catching a cold or uh, catching uh, chicken pox. And the, the second uh, thought was that this is affecting uh, different demographics than the original variants, uh, meaning that this is hitting younger folks uh, more uh, uh, swiftly than the ones in the past. Are those things true? That appears to be the case, Dan. That's a great question. So, um... Anybody that's old enough to have lived through the time when we all got chicken pox before there was effective varicella vaccines knows that it's a pretty contagious virus. Uh, um, and so this variant is estimated to be as transmissible as 
the chicken pox, just so that people can have a frame of reference for what we're talking about. So it's that would make it more transmissible than MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, SARS-CoV-1, which was the original SARS virus from uh, uh, 2004, roughly, Ebola, common cold, seasonal flu, and even smallpox. So yes, this is more transmissible and a, a roughly twice as transmissible or so as what the ancestral or the initial COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus was. So definitely appears to be more transmissible. Um, so that certainly is a concern. It also... The pandemic has shifted, as you suggest in your question. Uh, what we're seeing as the people that are getting sick are, are younger, uh, you know, having less of the health problems that what we saw initially that predominantly impacted you know, older, long-term care, lots of health problems types of situations. But I think what that reflects is that that initial population is a highly immunized population. Whereas the people that we're seeing a lot of disease in now are largely non-immunized persons, which the vaccine has not been as widely uptaken in younger people as it was in the, in, in the initial wave, which were predominantly older persons. So I wanna go back for just a minute to talk a little bit about transmissibility again. Um, so when we say something is more transmissible, um, that includes a variety of different things, right? That is, you know, your viral load, how much you're shedding, contact time, um, you know, some, there are a lot of factors that go into that. Can you explain some of those? Yeah, so um, we typically, uh, there's ways of looking at this, but one of the things that you look at, with, that's been looked at with SARS-CoV-2, and again, the information is not, um, enormous at this point in time, and we continue to gather things as time goes on. But you can look at and estimate uh, viral loads that people that have infection have in their body. So a viral load is how much virus are they carrying around or shedding um, that could be potentially contagious. And so this has been looked at with SARS-CoV-2. And so we have a, a little bit of an idea that the more viral load that there is, the more contagious it looks like people are. Um, we can also look at epidemiologic tracing where you see if we have one case of this, how many more people that were exposed can become infected in that group. So we, we refer to that a bit as R0, which is a, a number that tells you how many people can one person infect uh, that, uh, that they have contact with? And so there's a couple of ways that we can look at infectiousness. And so Delta seems to have a higher viral load and, and that viral load seems to stay higher for longer than the ancestral or wild type SARS-CoV-2 virus, as well as the fact that some of the epidemiologic studies, this is where the comparison to chickenpox comes along, appears to be able to, one person appears to be able to infect a similar number of people as chickenpox, which is more than the initial SARS-CoV-2 virus. So there's a couple of ways that you can look at uh, infectivity for, for, del for Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2. So influenza, for example, if I have influenza, the likelihood that I'm gonna spread it to one or two 
susceptible people. Um, and the same was true for probably the ancestral SARS-CoV-2 virus. Whereas if you look at the Delta variant, if, if I'm in a group of like five or six people, that many people could get it just from me if I'm shedding enough virus at the time that I have contact with them. Whereas with one of those other viruses, only one or two other people might have gotten infected. Gotcha. That makes sense. So um, we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, the Greek alphabet names, right? We have the, the Delta variant and the Alpha variant. And I haven't heard yet mentioned the Loki variant for those of you that would be following the MCU and Loki's new TV show. Um, <laughs> when we talk about these variants, it is kind of a, a more efficient naming system, right? Because we were saying things like this is the Brazil variant or the India variant or the California variant. Um, when we talk about Delta, where did that originate? So what was its original name? Yeah, so great question. So there's been various naming strategies for the variants as this has gone on. And the, and the, the variants that we were referring to a lot initially were referred to as the Pango variant. It's got a longer name that I that's escaping me right now. And that was where you were looking at the the like B117, which was the, uh, the then were also referred to as the UK variant, which is now the Alpha variant. Um, and so the problem with some of those is is one is that the the location variants kind of uh, uh, had some issue with. Uh, discrimination. So you, you know, you had people that felt that this was, you know, didn't want to be called the UK variant or the, the India variant for whatever reasons. It didn't, it didn't make sense, even though we were just trying to have a way that people could remember where it was from. It certainly didn't seem fair. And so dropping the location certainly made sense. The problem with the Pango variant was that uh, as we got more of these, it was hard to remember B, blah, 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 where are the periods and what and how many digits are in between and after and everything else. So then they decided to come up with the, the um, Greek alphabet and then just go down, much like the way they name hurricanes, for example. You know, they do it each year and they start with A and they alternate to male and female names. So this was a way to standardize it. So it was easier for people when they were referencing what variant they were talking about to remember what it is. And then this other information can certainly be found uh, pretty easily just by looking it up as there's lots of sources for this. Um, as I said, the alpha variant was the B117 and that one was initially found in the United Kingdom, for example. You asked specifically about Delta. Delta variant uh, was the Pango is B1617. And that one was first identified in India around October of 2020. Um, so that's kind of the story behind the naming nomenclature for the variants. So the, the, the virus that um, you know, we're referencing, the, the Delta that originated in India, uh, you know, Anybody that was paying attention to the news uh, remembers all of the grief and the heartache and the deaths and the cases um, in India. Uh, you know, and I, and I can't remember how many months ago, you know, that where it really peaked. Um, what has happened in India since it did peak? How, how, are, how are they doing now? How is that area doing now? It's a great question. I think they're still having... 
um, you know, significant cases, but I don't think it's nearly as bad as it, what it was at its peak. Um, the India outbreak was interesting just because of the Delta virus, which was there, but also some of the other complications that they had with uh, invasive mold disease that people may have seen uh, related to cases that they had there um, that certainly was a unique part of, uh, of COVID that uh, we didn't see in, in, in other places. So there was a lot of investigation into that. So we, we, know, the, we know it's bad. <laughs> we, we know that it's more contagious. Um, we know that the, the vaccines do help counter it. And if you've had the vaccine, that you're way, way less likely to end up in a hospital. Um, is all of that true? Yes, I think that's all very, very valid points um, that you make, Dan. And, and um, I think that's the key part of this whole thing. If you look at vaccine effectiveness, um, and obviously vaccine effectiveness, what we have the data on up before Delta in the United States um, was all that, you know, the vaccines are very effective. And they're very effective against uh, especially hospitalization, ICU admission, and mortality. And so I think the key thing that we were worried about is, is that true with Delta? Does the vaccine still help protect against Delta? And what we see with vaccines in Delta, at least what we've seen so far, is that, yes, we might have some more infections, and we might have more of those people with infections have um, symptomatic disease. But at the end of the day, what matters is, is that hospitalizations seem to be still largely prevented, as do deaths. And so that's kind of the key take home here is that the vaccines remain to very effective against the Delta variant. And the best thing that we can do, remember we talked earlier about how viral replication is where we get to variants and these variants can become more fit and difficult to treat. If we can shut off viral replication, then we won't get as many variants. Um, and so the best way to do that is to prevent more infections. And by far and away, the best way to do that is vaccination. Plus it keeps people out of the hospital, which the hospitals are um, largely still stressed from before because this has been a long haul for all of the, the healthcare workers, staff, everybody involved, and now it's starting again. So physically and mentally, that's uh, certainly taking its toll. And so if we can keep people out of the hospital and out of our ICUs and uh, keep them from dying, it certainly uh, helps uh, society in general, but certainly the healthcare workers. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, my role as an infection preventionist and your role as an infectious disease physician and how we kind of merge those two when we talk about preventing disease. Um, we talk a lot about this thing called the Swiss cheese model. And I know that sounds like a really funny name, but basically um, the Swiss cheese model is that you have these prevention strategies, right? Vaccination being one of them hand-washing being one of them, masking being one of them, and not one single strategy is going to prevent every disease, right? Or every case that could be, come out of a disease. But if we layer those on top of each other, just like you stack a pile of Swiss cheese that has holes in it, eventually you'll get to a point where there are no holes. So using some of those non-pharmaceutical -pharm interventions still, I think, um, 
can be really helpful. So, you know, if you go out, make sure you're washing your hands, make sure you're using hand sanitizer, wearing a mask still. Um, you know, I personally, when I go out to the grocery store, I still wear a mask. I get weird looks when I'm there, but I think that it's helping to protect others. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of those non-pharmaceutical interventions and how they can really help? Yeah, that's a great point. And something else that I'm glad you brought up because we wanted to certainly touch on this. So the problem with Delta is, is that, you know, as you get more people immunized, you're going to see more breakthrough cases. Again, that's not unexpected that we're going to have some breakthrough cases, right? We, we know that, uh, that that's going to happen. And the key is, is that again, is that they typically have either no disease or mild disease and stay out of the hospital and everything else. Some of the early data with Delta, however, is showing that the people who have been previously vaccinated and get Delta have as high of viral loads as those who have been unvaccinated, which means that we think that they are probably as contagious or around as contagious as unvaccinated persons. And so, and we already know that the Delta variant is more contagious in general, as we talked about earlier. So vaccination alone here probably isn't going to be enough now to get us out of our surges that we're in. So those non-pharmaceutical interventions that you talked about are going to be important. Um, so wearing a mask, uh, uh, you know, maybe doing some social distancing again, uh, those kinds of things are going to be important now because people can be shedding the virus and not really be that ill and you really wouldn't have any way of knowing it. So the best way that we can do this is a combination of the, the vaccinations as well as those NPIs that you're talking about. And that's part of the reason that the CDC changes their, um, their recommendations here recently, right? So they went from not having to wear masks if you were vaccinated to back to masks, especially indoors, again, where you're more likely to have uh, contact with um, other people. And so wearing a mask and trying to distance as much as you can, in addition to getting vaccinated is the best things that we can do as a society now to get out of this surge. You brought up a really good point of the, the CDC just changing their recommendations for the public again. And I think that a lot of people out there are starting to get frustrated, right? Well, we heard we didn't have to mask and now we do have to mask. And so what is your story? And um, why do we need to, change what we're doing now. And I think it's a really good, um, it's a really good thing to talk about these mutations and how that changes, um, changes what we need to be doing to fight the virus. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, the CDC and, and those of us in, in healthcare, infectious disease, public health, however you want to look at it, are trying to look and give recommendations based on, the best information that we have at hand um, and, and the data that we have. And certainly the game has changed. The, the whole situation changed as Delta became the predominant virus uh, variant, however you want to refer to it. And, uh, and we've gotten some more information about what exactly that means as far as transmissibility and, uh, and disease. So that's why the recommendations changed uh, is, is because of putting all of that science data information into place and trying to do what's best to try to get this under control. 
and I think you bring up a really good point about, um, you know, we are doing the best that we can with the information that we have. And that information that we as public health professionals have is data driven, which Dan is our data guy, right? He looks at those numbers all day long, every day um, to identify trends or whatever's going on. But as the public is getting more into um, the COVID-19 being a common thing, right? We, I think everyone's getting a little complacent. Um, you know, you get sick now and maybe you don't go to the doctor or you don't get tested. You just stay home for, you feel better. And having those test results and that data is really helpful for us to make informed decisions. And it can be detrimental when we're trying to look at these variants if we don't have the correct data. So if you're not feeling well, go get tested, talk to your public health professionals. That way we can get accurate data and use that to make informed decisions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that uh, you guys have both been intimately involved in this uh, uh, pandemic. So, you know, I mean, change has been kind of the norm uh, as as we've learned more things as we've gone on. And I think it's important that the public realizes that we're not changing because of really uh, opinions or because of thoughts or, or anything like that. We're trying to do it based on where the science is taking us. And that requires the data. I think most people are um, used to going to a doctor and let's say you have influenza and, and, you know, physicians and public and everybody's known about influenza for, you know, however long for, uh, you know, the, uh, but something like SARS-CoV-2, which is brand new, we're building this airplane while it's in the air, trying to figure out what's the best way to do and not knowing which way this is necessarily going to go. Is it going to go up, down, left, right? And so we're trying to use the data that we have at hand and make the best recommendations that we can to try to steer us clear of this pandemic. Dr. Starlin, did I understand um, what you said earlier correctly um, in that individuals that are vaccinated that there is a vaccine breakthrough and they get the uh, Delta variant, they can transmit, they can um, uh, cause um, others to be infected at the same level as those who are unvaccinated that got the same Delta variant. The statement would be that breakthrough infections may be as transmissible as unvaccinated infections. So I don't think we've been able to necessarily confirm that, but based on, we're talking about the viral loads and their, their cycle threshold values and everything else, that it appears from some of the data that is available that the breakthrough infections have had cycle thresholds that have been in the same range as unvaccinated infections, which would suggest that they have a high viral load. And we have historically associated those types of cycle threshold numbers as being potentially transmissible. So that would be uh, somebody maybe vaccinated or unvaccinated. They may not show any symptoms of illness, but they may still spread the disease, spread the virus. 
it's possible whether they're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic that it appears that yes that they have more virus that they shed than what we'd had with the initial um, virus and earlier variants. So as as Sarah was referencing, wearing uh, she's wearing a mask in uh, the grocery store. Um, to me personally, that doesn't sound like that's a, a terrible idea. No, I think it's a, a, a great idea currently, given the what's going on until we get to hopefully get the surge under control and see where things take us next. So when we talk about somebody being mildly symptomatic, um, like we talked about before, you know, people are getting complacent a little bit. COVID-19 has been around for a while. People are have allergies, um, you know, and something as simple as just having a headache could be COVID-19 symptoms. And, um, you know, I wake up with a headache one morning and I'm just kind of feeling run down. I've been vaccinated. That could be the Delta variant. And, um, you know, even a sniffly nose for, from allergies could be the Delta variant and not really allergies. So I think that um, making sure that you're monitoring what's going on and paying attention is really important. And if we have those vaccine breakthrough cases to make sure that you're still getting tested, like I said before, not only are we looking for um, regular cases of COVID-19 so we can kind of guide our decisions based on data, but those vaccine breakthrough cases um, are really important for our data as well and learning more about what's happening. Yeah, so I, um, I think that uh, you're exactly right. I mean, and it can be difficult to know, um, you know, differentiate things, you know, what's an allergy, what's COVID, what's, uh, you know, one of the other viruses that are going around, because clearly in our community here now, we certainly have something going around that's not COVID because we're testing a fair number of symptomatic people and, and coming up COVID negative. I know I've seen parainfluenza, RSV, you know, who knows what else at, at this time of the year. And that may pick up once uh, we start having school as well with um, a bunch of uh, children going back to school. But you're right. Uh, I think the only way we're going to know is by testing. And testing, um, I think, is important, especially when we're starting to see rising cases. It's the only way we're going to get that data. When something in the community is extremely low, um, then testing probably becomes a little less important, like influenza in the summer. If you have an influenza-like illness and it's June you and, and you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you probably don't have influenza. Um, if you go back a month and you had what was your typical allergy-type symptoms and you know there's almost very little COVID replication going on in cases in our community, then you could be like, yeah, it's probably just my regular allergies. But now as cases are picking up with Delta and we're starting to see more hospitalizations and everything else, it's just more likely that symptoms that you have could be uh, COVID. And I think a test is certainly warranted to, to rule that out because if you are positive, then you can take the appropriate steps to protect your family, your loved ones, your friends, everybody else and isolate yourself. Yeah, and I think that that's really important too as we talk to healthcare providers out there, right? Um, especially our audience for this podcast is dental providers, and we are in those high risk procedures all day long, every day, right? We are in people's mouths and we are doing those aerosol generating procedures. So, um, Dr. Starlin, would you have any advice for healthcare providers that may be in high risk 
situations on a regular basis? Yeah, I would say in general, um, healthcare providers, nothing has really changed significantly for us. We still need to take the appropriate precautions uh, to protect ourselves and our patients as we care for, for people. It, it also protects our colleagues as well. So um, the things that we were doing back in the past when we were caring for patients, I think we still need to continue to do. Uh, we never really changed a lot of our uh, protocols as far as what healthcare workers should do. We changed some things when they were away from patient care, but in terms of when you're providing care for patients, healthcare providers should still be doing the things uh, that have been recommended since the, the onset of this uh, pandemic. So, uh, you know, masking, gloving, uh, if you're going to do something where you, you might get splashes, you make sure you cover your mucous membranes, your eyes, uh, those kinds of things to, to protect yourself. Um, what about uh, increased screening for employees? Do you think that is appropriate? Uh, like symptom screening before they come in for a shift? That's a great question. So I think uh, you, uh, your question has kind of got a couple of parts to it. So it talked about screening and then it talked about symptom screening. So, um, and I'm going to separate those out if that's okay a little bit. Um, so symptoms, I think anybody with symptoms should have a test. Um, and so if they're uh, a healthcare worker, even if they're vaccinated, they should have a test before they come back to work if they have symptoms that might be COVID. And that's been our approach all along. Screening asymptomatic healthcare workers, I think is another story. Um, and that's um, the logistics of that are always the, the, the bugaboo is, uh, you know, you have to find a way to conveniently uh, get people to where they need to be screened and swabbed, have the people there to do the swabbing. And then if it's not on site, you know, couriers, you have to have capacity in your lab. So that becomes a little bit more complicated as far as that goes. And I don't know that the yield is tremendous for that. We have mostly done uh, symptomatic screening and a pretty robust program for our colleagues here at Nebraska Medicine. Uh, but we haven't done a lot of asymptomatic screening, except for in certain circumstances. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So, Dr. Starlin, it's, um, I had heard through the grapevine that uh, you were working on an article uh, on variants. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that article is about? and uh, when it might be published? Yeah, happy to. Thanks for asking. Um, Dr. Cockhut and I worked on a, a little article that's going to be in a, a journal, uh, more of a newspaper type journal coming out, I hope next week, um, that just talks about kind of the variety of variants and just kind of why they're here, what they mean, um, what they are, and kind of where we're going with them. So it was a lot of what we talked about earlier about how variants evolve, the, um, the variants of interest and concern, et cetera, as well as the naming of the variants and kind of some of the specific uh, points of interest for each of the variants of concern, like how more transmissible they are, uh, how much more severe disease they cause, et cetera. So uh, hopefully it's out next week and I hope you all enjoy it. That's awesome. So we'll, um, for all of our listeners, we'll post that on our Facebook page when it's published and let you guys know so you can go find that article and give it a read. I have one last question for you, Dr. Sarlin, before we end this awesome show. I've learned so much. Um, 
And this is kind of a, a personal view question, I guess. I know there probably isn't a whole lot of data out there, but with things mutating and ever evolving with all of these different variants, are there any that you have seen so far that you are particularly worried about that we should keep an eye on? Yeah, well, we've spent a lot of time talking about Delta, and obviously that's a concern. Um, there's some reports of a Delta Plus variant that they've been seeing in England and India that may be a little bit worse than the Delta variant. And then there's the Lambda variant, which has been seen in South America. So um, we don't have nearly as much information about either of those, uh, and, but they certainly bear watching. Uh, and I can tell you that the CDC and WHO are keeping an eye on these and collecting data and reporting on them as much as they know. So. But if I was to sit back and just watch, I would certainly be concerned about Delta, which is here now. It's our present, but be watching uh, those other things closely just to see what happens with them and what more data we can get. There have been cases of Lambda that was reported in Houston, Texas. Um, so there are cases in the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's more that we just don't know about yet. So it bears watching. That's really good advice. Keep your eyes open, right? I guess, and keep your mask on. That's right. And, and get a shot or two. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> Very much appreciate you being on our show today. Uh, we know that uh, there's a lot to do and you're involved with quite a bit. Uh, so we appreciate your time and uh, we appreciate um, all of the uh, sharing of your knowledge to uh, all of our listeners, um, as well as us. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. I'm, I always enjoy talking to you guys and uh, maybe we'll meet again on another podcast. I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP infection control hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode, and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.